Hi, I'm Darren Steele, and this is Think Queerly, where I help deep thinkers and creatives cultivate their uniqueness and purpose to enjoy more peace of mind, acceptance, and freedom in their lives. Now, this is a part three when, if you're a regular listener, you might have been expecting a part two. Uh, It's a continuation of my Where You Stand leadership series. And the first article and podcast was called Is What You Stand For in Life Making a Meaningful Difference in the World? And then I separated that longer article into a second one, which became part two. Self-examination is a significant contributor to the solidity of your moral character. Now, I speak to both of those articles in in the last podcast, episode 171. Now, today I'm going to continue with, as I said, what's part three, titled, Does Your Moral Character Commune Understanding and Respect for Human Dignity? So, Where you stand, what you stand for in life, requires understanding the moral myths that organize society. And I just want to interject that I'm really excited to be bringing these ideas to you because I've been working on these and developing these for some time. And I suppose in the consideration, the contemplation, and the development of um these principles that I'll be speaking about in in the subsequent podcast following this one, um, I guess you could say I'm a little nervous because I'm putting down and sort of laying laying claim. No, not laying claim, but I guess putting my own stake in the ground about what I want to define as an evolutionary uh, set of transcendent principles that we can work with, that we can embody and practice collectively to help liberate, to make for a better humanity. So without going on too long here, let me just summarize briefly that in the last podcast, I talked about the qualities that define our humanity and they support and, and and support one's integrity. And these are qualities that include your natural and desired character traits, your core values, the, th- the things that, you know, mean the most to you. And if you remember, I talked about and I introduced the podcast this way with my core values, peace of mind or tranquility, acceptance and freedom. And these are also the beliefs that we have that orient us within society. And when we know what all these different qualities are, they support who you are, what you stand for, and what you believe in. But you still need a purpose, something that's really meaningful and actionable. Otherwise, you won't have clarity and direction in your life to be able to even associate with goals or intentions or objectives that you would like to accomplish. So I'm going to look at the much bigger picture now. Where do you as an individual ground yourself in the larger moral landscape to commune with the rest of humanity in a balanced way? 
So let's start with a question. What is your moral character? What is your moral character? Now, if you remember the metaphor of the house that I spoke about in the last episode, I said, think of a like an old stately mansion. It's it's beautifully constructed. It's very well kept up. It's just big blocks of stones, and it's been around for hundreds of years, let's say. And it's solid. It just doesn't look like anything's going to be able to knock it down or or break it down in any way. So you see the external reality, the facade, the walls, the outside walls, the doors, the windows, and the roof, and the construction. But what you don't see is what supports it underneath the foundations. But they're there. And it's the foundations that support the integrity of our stru- of the structure of that building. And our moral character is just like the property or the ground on which that house stands, that surrounding landscape, however big it is. And each of us communes on a moral landscape. We put our stake in the ground with respect to what we believe, what we stand for. And by doing so, we also establish the communities to which we belong. So think about this for a moment. How would you describe your moral character? Even if you need to pause for a moment, in one or two sentences, if you were to answer the question, what is your moral character, what would you say? Now, I want to mention that there's an important reason why I've chosen to use the word commune, and I've said it already a couple times in the title, and how we all commune um, as human beings on a moral landscape. Now, as a verb, Commune means to converse or talk together, but more usually in a, with profound intensity and intimacy. It's an interchange of thoughts or feelings to be in intimate communication or rapport with someone. And another expression you'll probably hear often is to commune with nature, to connect, to be one with. And commune certainly has a religious and spiritual connotation. You'll hear that in the sense of Communion, taking communion, and the idea, at least in um, Catholicism, is to take communion in Christ, as in taking the body and blood of Christ at the Mass, but also to commune with your God or this higher spirit to be one with. Okay. So when we commune with others, We're going far beyond the simplistic aspects of simple communication or imparting bits of information like, you know, head left on the highway and then take a right at interchains, yada, yada. Communing with someone is making a much deeper connection with them and seeking oneness with them, which is a form of understanding and respect for their dignity as a human being, really connecting and seeing them for who they are. Now, in this age of internet doxing and bullying and cancel culture and just (laughs) scroll down a couple times on Twitter and all you see are like personal attacks, we need to be reminded of the need for connection and belonging. And the more we push away and condemn and blame others or declare that we are on the right side of the argument, 
the more likely we may go down the path of dehumanizing those people we disagree with and just creating further division and polarization to the point where everyone is stressed out and is in reactive mode in some form of fight, flight, or freeze. Now, society defines and supports various moral landscapes in the form of organizational myths. And what we witness with these moral landscapes, um, or rather an example, is in the form of religion. And various religions ascribe to different group beliefs and different values and they're usually attributed to a higher power. And those particular religions attribute the values or the higher aspirations to that higher power, that thing that can't be questioned. The problem or the exception to this rule are the religious leaders who manipulate the narrative, usually to his advantage, because very often in rigid, dogmatic, and fundamentalist religions, the leader is a man. And this also depends on the followers blindly believing in all the associated myths of also gender and patriarchy, which are forms of social organization and forms of control that all come with different sets of values and beliefs. Now, not all religions are like this, of course, but it is certainly an endemic problem. But we also have other organizational myths. And politics is one of the best examples, and that could be liberalism, socialism, populism, oligarchic governments like in in Russia, dictatorships, and also capitalism. Now, you might think that capitalism shouldn't be labeled under politics, but consider that capitalism has been the single largest unifying organizational myth of all time. Um, Yuval Noah Harari makes a really powerful case for this argument. And when you read it, you won't even feel it's an argument. It just makes complete sense. In his book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, it is one of the best books I think I've read in the last 10 years. So coming back to capitalism, it's allowed people and countries, regardless of belief or gender or values, to work together using a system of exchange and evaluation that goes across borders and language and customs that everyone understands. And good or bad, everyone knows what money is and the power of money. And money in and of itself is also another myth, right? Because it's like, yes, there's paper and there's coin, but the idea of currency is a myth. It's an organizational structure. And if you don't agree with me still that capitalism is not political, well, consider why do governments get involved in taxation, tax breaks for corporations, and in some case, they own Um, companies which are called crown corporations, at least in Canada and the UK, like the post office, or Canada used to own one of the airlines, Air Canada, before it was entirely privatized. 
the province in which I live, Ontario, manages the LCBO, the Liquor Control Board of Ontario. So there's a big variety and lots of different types of myths that organize our society. And this leads to contention, to arguments, to disagreement about what's morality, what's justice, what's good and bad, what's right and wrong. And you can take a look at any reliable and factual and trustworthy source of news media to get a brilliant cross-section of what's going on in the world right now. Now, I provide a lot of detail in the article. I won't go into everything here with some examples. We see challenges across the globe based in religious myths. We see this in places like Poland that has tried to create LGBT zones, LGBT free zones. Can you imagine? Poland is also working against anyone saying anything negative about the country in association with the Holocaust to the point that it's abject denial. And I think these two things are related as if to say we never as a country, none of our systems were ever, none of our systems, none of our citizens in World War II were ever Nazi sympathizers. Well, when you turn around and say that this particular state or city is LGBT free, that feels very much like a kind of ghetto mentality from the Jewish ghettos in World War II in the sense of trying to either compartmentalize and organize and put a group of people into an area where you can control them, or in this case, saying this area is free of queers. And this, there's so many more examples. And like I said, check out the article for some really insightful reads about how these myths influence control us and cause argument and contention about what is right or wrong and the challenging issues across the moral landscape, the deeper ones about what is right, what is wrong, what is justice, and what is equality. You know, this begs the rhetorical question, why can't we all just get along, right? Why can't we? And you probe into this more deeply, and I would highly suggest going to read um, Harari's book, Sapiens, because the way in which he covers the aspects of the growth of humanity and how we were once, you know, on par with the animals in the sense of the hierarchy, we were not the dominant alpha species as we have become and then when that switched happened when we became the alpha species and were able to control through various means and protect ourselves things really changed and now we're living on a planet that has almost 8 billion people and the more of us that there are the less space that we have the less connection that we have to nature we are depriving ourselves on a genetic level of the things that make us very human. So why can't we all just get along is, you know, a very rhetorical question. And it's as complicated a one to solve as it is finding the answer to 
the actual origin of the Big Bang, or what, if anything, preceded it. But now, in this moment, we can look at ourselves as a species on this planet that is connected by our shared individuality, our shared humanity, and yet we feel all the more separate and disconnected. And this is in part due to the liberalism myth of individuality. Again, Harari speaks a lot about this, but it's not to say there's anything good or bad about liberalism, but liberalism really is what politically as a system and socially as a system um, gives power, in a sense, to the individual. It's all about individual expression. So we're living in this paradoxical duality. Our humanity connects us to other human beings, but it doesn't necessarily protect us in the sphere of the moral landscape and human rights and injustice and inequalities. I mentioned this already. This is a perfect example of the LGBTQ fear in in places like Poland and even worse, Chechnya, where a dominant religious myth and the political parties have deemed LGBTQ lives a threat to social mores, to social morals and values. And Chechnya has gone so far to say that we don't exist. The president or the prime minister, I forget exactly his, his title, has said, there are no queers in my country. You know, that's just absolutely ridiculous. But whoever you are listening to this, just insert any other marginalized identity to see the same challenges across the moral landscape of our planet. So in a sense, the cult of identity, when it goes that far, it's about me, 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 and expressing just who I am at the expense of others. The cult of identity, at its worst, sees humanism as a lack of personal liberty. In other words, there's a lack of of communing with the other. I think we saw this play out very strongly, or we're seeing it sometimes, especially in the United States, but we sometimes see it in these uh, weekend protests against COVID and against wearing masks and, you know, give me liberty or give me death. That's such a, I don't think it's a complicated argument. I just don't think people are willing to recognize I almost want to back up from that. People willing to recognize, because they may say the same thing about me, but I look at it as, yes, okay, it is an infringement in a sense on certain freedoms, but freedom is not an absolute. For 8 billion people to function and work and live together without killing each other, there have to be sometimes restrictions in place. It doesn't mean an absolute removal of freedoms. That's suppression and oppression and racism and prejudice, the most extreme forms. 
I think this is a situation where we need to be mindful of caring for ourselves and caring for others and the converse, that sometimes being respectful of the dignity for the lives of others may cause us to consider us doing things that may seem like it's restricting our freedom, for example, wearing a mask because of COVID. So let's come back to the organizational myths that manage and control societies. Now, some myths connect us. Capitalism connects us across the globe. Other myths, like very dogmatic and and, uh, fundamentalist religions or oppressive political regimes, more often than not dehumanize, very much create an us versus them, which is a form of disconnection. And there's nothing more powerful than fear and disgust to motivate groups of people up to an entire country to agree to restrictive laws and criminal sentences in exchange for them to have prediction and response based on what they're told to believe. So that's a form of indoctrination. I spoke at length about that in the last podcast. So a universal moral code, is it just a utopian vision or, you know, is it possible or a total pipe dream? So there's a, a debate about whether human values can and should be considered facts. And in particular, if those values could be shown to contribute to the overall well-being of humanity. And you might think, how can a human value be a fact? Well, consider for a moment the the expression, the value of compassion. That can be something you hold as a very important characteristic, uh, a character trait. It could be just very much your nature, that you feel compassion for others and you try and help people in difficult situations. Now imagine... If more people practice compassion, and imagine if we could somehow scientifically measure the results of compassion, meaning could we demonstrate, could we see an improvement in individuals and in group well-being? both by the person who is being compassionate, who is giving compassion and showing and demonstrating compassion, and the receiver, the person who is benefiting from receiving compassion. It's a really interesting question, and it it speaks to an idea of a universal moral code or a universal moral landscape. And Sam Harris talks about this in his book, The Moral Landscape, if you want to go deeper into Um, his argumentation uh, on this subject. Because I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of whether more values can or cannot be factual. I just want to mention that as a point of consideration. And in the hope that you would agree with me that we're missing a universal moral code. And this includes those people who want a moral code based on their religious imperatives But this is precisely where we need to speak about the issues of dehumanization head on. Because if 
a morality creates an us versus them. I'm seeking to find that universal morality, those universal values that we could all share and contribute and participate in. And that when practiced universally, and more often than not, might help to dissolve this polarization, these boundaries, these challenges of prejudice. Because without a shared understanding, without a way to communicate on an even landscape, we will risk ever more contention, division, and polarization. We need to know what we stand for individually and collectively. Now, in the next installment of this Where You Stand series, I'm going to share a set of transcendent values based in the wisdom and interpretation of the Tao teaching. I believe that these principles are values that everyone would agree surpass and exceed other individual values in the service of cultivating a better society and humanity. I know I'm looking forward to sharing this with you and I invite you to let me know your thoughts on what I've talked about here and in the last podcast. What questions do you have or what was the most powerful insight that you've taken from what I've shared with you so far. Until next time, if you can't think straight, think queerly. Queerly.